Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, welcome to Refinery Church, specifically welcome to our weekly worship gathering. This is the time as a church body that we gather to worship, and we worship through a variety of ways. We worship through service to one another. I'm sure you were greeted uh, through the cafe, through those who are leading worship tonight and those in the kids' department. They are worshiping God through serving their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we just concluded worship through song and praise, and then we're going to continue now in worship the reading of God's Word together. And so if you have a Bible with you, this would be a great opportunity to open to the book of Ephesians. It's where we're going to be studying tonight. Now, tonight is the first time, or this, the, this is the beginning of a series we're starting in the book of Ephesians. We're calling this series, Therefore. The reason for that is very simple. The book of Ephesians, it's a letter. It was written to the church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. He wrote this letter in two parts, or it was split up into two parts. The first part, the first three books of this, uh, the first chapters of this book, are all doctrine, meaning that these are all the different uh, essential doctrinal details that Paul wanted the church of Ephesus to know about Christ. The second half was the practical application of that doctrine. So he gave you all this doctrine in the first half, and then the second half gave you the how to apply that doctrine in, a, in, a, in the world they lived in. And both parts come together with one word, therefore. And so that's why we're calling it that. Um, tonight, we're going to begin um, the way this book begins, by reading chapter, a portion of chapter 1 together. So open with me to chapter 1. We're going to begin studying in just a moment. Um, but let me give you some context to where we're at in this book, what, what's going on in this letter. And to do that, let me give you a, a scenario. Imagine with me, this is something Lydia and I have gone through, and I'm sure you have as well at some point in your lives. Lydia and I, as many of you know, are from North Carolina originally, and so when we go home and visit, uh, we live there, I lived there for 22 years, when we go home and visit, um, there's obviously a lot of people we want to go see. Now, it's, it's hard because you have 22 years of your life spent in one location with all these people you met in those years, and so when you go home for a week, you really don't have the time to see everybody you'd want to see. And if, even if you tried, you would really miss the opportunity to see the people you really came to see. And that's the dilemma we struggle with when we go home to visit family, is do we stay with our family and spend all our time with them and see nobody else, or do we try to see everybody and miss out on the opportunity to really see the people we came to see? And I'm sure you've experienced this before. If you've moved before in your life, this is something that's not unique to Lydia and I, and it's not unique to us in the 21st century either. In fact, this book, this letter, is kind of the byproduct of that dilemma. What I mean by that is the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, he wrote this letter two years after he visited them. But really, he didn't visit them. Let me explain what happened two years before this letter was written. See, Paul was in Rome, and then he was on his way to traveling to Jerusalem. The reason Paul was on his way to Jerusalem was for the celebration of Pentecost, and he really wanted to get there on time. Paul wanted to make sure he was there on time for Pentecost in Jerusalem. The dilemma comes in when Paul realized on his way to Jerusalem, he would be going right by the church in Ephesus. And this was a big deal for Paul because Paul planted this church in Ephesus. He knew these people well. He spent years with them, lived with them, pastored them for some short time, and then he moved on to plant more churches. 
And so Paul is in this dilemma where he has to travel by Ephesus to get to Jerusalem on time. And if he stops to visit, he's going to miss his deadline. But if he doesn't stop and visit and they find out he went right by them, you know, it would hurt some feelings, as you would imagine. So what does Paul do? How does Paul face this dilemma? Well, Paul, from his historical note, we know Paul sent a, um, a member of his group ahead of him to Ephesus to tell the elders of that church to come and meet him 30 miles south of the city. And Paul arrives and visits with the elders first. He spends time with the elders. He gets to know them again, visits them, gets to know what they're, what's going on in their lives, how the church is going, the struggles they're going through. He learns about what's been happening to this church he planted some years ago. And then he travels on to Jerusalem. And many of these elders, including Paul himself, wondered if this would ever be the last time they see each other. They really thought that this might be the last time they see Paul because Paul truly believed that he might die when he traveled to Jerusalem. He didn't know if he'd make it out of Jerusalem. Not only do these people see Paul one more time, but they get this letter as well. Two years after he saw the elders of Ephesus, he is in prison in Rome, and he wrote, to our knowledge, four letters that we see in the scriptures today. One of them was this one to the people of Ephesus. And tonight we're going to read what Paul wrote to them. And we're going to start with a short section at the beginning of this book. It's verses uh, 3 through 14. Paul wrote this letter, as I said, first starting with doctrine, then the practical application. But this section we're going to read tonight that Paul wrote to them is a poem, or somewhat of a poem. It's this short, uh, po poetic way to explain God. So I want to walk, walk with you, uh, walk through this with you, verse by verse, to see how Paul explains God to the people of Ephesus. And it begins here with verse 3, if you'll read with me, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Take note of those last few words, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, here in verse 3, Paul is summarizing everything we're about to see in their next 14 verses. Or in this section, he, he's summarizing everything we're about to see. And it's all summarized in those words, bl spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. What Paul is doing here in summarizing this is trying to make a point that God's blessings are spiritual, not physical. At least in general, God's blessings are spiritual, not physical. Now, why is Paul making this so clear to these people in, in particular? Well, when we understand the context of this letter, understand the context of who is receiving this letter, it makes a lot of sense. See, again, this is in Ephesus. The people he's writing to are, are living in Ephesus. And I don't know if you know much about this city during this time, but Ephesus was an epicenter of religion. There were many, many core religions found in this city at that time. If you were to travel into the city, you'd find many temples on your route into the city. And one temple in particular that stood out above the rest was called the Temple of Diana. In fact, I think I have a picture of this that they're going to show you. The Temple of Diana is one of the wonders of the world. When this, when this was taking place, when they received this letter, this temple was there. It was massive. It was beautiful. It was made of all these precious materials. When you lived in this city, every day you sat in the, sh the shadow of this temple. It was a very big deal for their culture. 
And this goddess Diana was known for you giving her physical blessings and her giving you back physical blessings. This was a very materialistic culture, which today I think we can agree, we can understand, can't we? Ephesus is not that different than we are today. They were a very physical, very materialistic culture. And so you can imagine when Paul writes this, this is a very countercultural message to what they understand in the culture they lived in. What they're seeing is Paul basically saying, God is more about your spiritual blessings than your physical ones. These gods and goddesses that your neighbors worship offer them physical blessings, but your God offers spiritual blessings. Now here's, what, here's where Paul goes with this. He gets, he gets into explaining these spiritual blessings. And how does he explain these spiritual blessings? He explains them by going through God's plan for salvation. He shows them God's plan for salvation. Something that the goddess Diana could never offer. Because he's going to show them, hey, here's the world you live in. They're offering you physical things today. But here's the God you worship. He's offering something they could never offer you. Salvation, eternal life, spiritual blessings in the future afterlife. And here's how Paul does it. Starting in verse 4, we see how he begins to explain this to the Ephesians. He says in, in verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I'll take note of these words here at the beginning. They're important. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We learn two things here, two very important things. One, we learn he chose us. God, our God in heaven, chose us. He chose his human race, these people he created. He chose us. But when did he choose us? This is even more important. When did he choose us? It says, before the foundation of the world. How many of you have experienced this? I certainly did growing up in gym class or in PE when you were, um, when you were playing. And, and the gym coach, what they do, they'd, they'd bring out uh, dodgeballs and they'd want to play dodgeball. And then they, what would they do? They'd bring out two captains to pick teams. And what happens every single time you have two captains picking teams? Someone has to be picked first. Someone has to be picked last. And nobody wants to be picked last. Nobody, even if you know you're not good at dodgeball, no one wants to get picked last. Why? Well, you don't want to get picked last because you, no one wants to be picked out of pity, and no one wants to be picked because they're the last option. In life, you don't want that. When you're living life, you don't want the person picking you, they pick you because it's out of pity, or because you're just the only option. They want, you want to be picked first because you want to be wanted. You want to be desired. Well, that's what we see here. Paul is starting off with a very important understanding of God. God chose us, and as we see, it's, this wasn't something he chose last minute. This is something he chose from the very beginning before humans existed, before anything existed. God chose his people. That's like if that dodgeball captain didn't just pick you the, the day of. It's like that dodgeball captain went to bed the night before thinking about picking you. They didn't just come up with it like, oh, I forgot they existed. I'll pick them first. No, no, no. It's like that dodgeball captain a month beforehand was like, when I'm captain, I'm going to pick that person. That's what God did for humanity. Before we even existed, before we ever did anything, God said, no, I want them. And he chose us. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is the posture in which God takes. And these are very big words, very, very big claims by Paul. What Paul is saying is a very big claim about God to a church, to a church in, a, in a nation or a city of materialistic people. To hear this, this is a big claim. You need to have something to back up these claims. You can't just say this and there be no examples or no evidence to back up your claims. Which is why Paul so masterly crafts this letter this way. Paul, in the very next verses, offers or begins to offer evidence to these claims being true. Verse 4 is all about how God chose us, and verses 5 and 6 begin to offer us examples or evidence to that being true. Here's what it says in verse 5 and 6. In, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Take note of those beginning words again. In love he predestined us. I love that. I love the way Paul words this. Those words in love, the way they're originally translated, references a type of love that is ordained by the lover. What I mean by that is this isn't a love that is based on transaction. This isn't a love based on you do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll love you. The word here doesn't describe a love that's, that's interactive of like, I've done something and you've done something and now we love each other. This love is essentially God choosing to love his people regardless of what they've done. Choosing to love them regardless of what they're going to give him in return. This love is orchestrated and ordained by the lover, not by the one being loved. It's why this next word, adoption, has so much weight here in this, in this verse. In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption. How many of you have been around adoptive parents? Or maybe you are an adoptive parent. If you're a good adoptive parent, you don't put your kids to a, a trial or to a test. You don't go to the adoptive agency and say, can I see you know, what their 40 time is? Can I see what their bench press is? I want to I make sure I'm getting the best kid. No, you love them because you love them. You're not going to send a kid away because they're not the ideal kid. You love them because you love them. An adoptive parent chooses to love them just because they're lovable, because you want to love them. An adoptive parent is not going to base it on what they've done for them, nor is the adoptive God going to base his love on what we've done for him. As this says, in love, meaning the lover loves us, has predestined us for adoption to himself. God chose his people, and through that, chose to adopt us into his eternal family. I love the idea of God being an adoptive parent, and we see this all throughout the New Testament. It's such a perfect illustration of God's love for us. And here in these first verses, verses 3 through 6, everything we've looked at so far, we see a summary of God the Father. If you're taking notes or you're highlighting tonight, I would highlight those verses together. Because what you're seeing is, is Paul beginning this section, beginning this poem, with a highlighting of God the Father, a summary of what God the Father is doing for creation. And I'll summarize even further what we see here. In summary, what we see in verses 3 through 6, which is what we just read, is the work of the Father which is the crafting of a plan before time even existed to save humanity from itself. 
I'll read that one more time. In summary, the work of the Father is the crafting of a plan before time even existed to save humanity from itself. That is what God has done. He created a plan. And this plan, as we just saw, was to save humanity. But now, we're going to see, in the next verses, how God orchestrated, or how God accomplished this very plan. And so read with me verses 7 and 8. We're going to see exactly what this plan, or what happened for this plan to exist and succeed. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Look at this at the beginning here. Who is the him they're referring to? In him we have redemption. Who is the him we're referring to? Well, this is the best Sunday school answer you can get, right? It's Jesus. You can all get this answer, right? In Jesus we have redemption. But don't, don't forget those few words here at the end. In Jesus we have redemption through what? Through his blood. Now Paul, at the beginning of this letter, as we've already seen, gave us the plan. Gave us the plan that God had for salvation. But why do you need a plan in the first place? Why do you put a plan in place? You only put a plan in place if you need a plan. You don't plan things unless there's a plan necessary for the thing to succeed. And that's what we're seeing here. Paul is explaining how God put a plan in place. Why did he put a plan in place? Because you and I needed it. Nobody was going to succeed without God putting this plan in place. We, were, we are broken creatures. We continue to be broken creatures. We are sinful creatures. All of us, every single one of us in this room, outside of this room, myself, anyone, all of us are completely broken creatures. If, in fact, the scriptures even say we are slaves to sin. Think about that language. We are slaves to sin. You're not a slave to something when you can just walk up and leave it. You're not a slave to something when you have the option to walk away from it. You're a slave to something when it completely controls you. And so what we're seeing here is Paul explaining that God has a plan in place. And this plan is the only way to break free from that master, break free from that thing that is controlling you, the world that controls you. And what is this plan, or how does this plan go into play? In Jesus we have redemption, and those last three words are the most important, through his blood. Do not forget those three words, because it's the only part that really matters. Because here's what we see. And I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again, and I like, I like this. It's important for us to look at it. Christ did, or we, we are not saved because Christ was a good person. We are not saved because Jesus lived a good life. We're not going to heaven because Jesus did good things. There are plenty of other religions in this world that will tell you, if you just look like this person, you can receive enlightenment. If you could just do X, Y, and Z, you can receive X, Y, and Z. It's all based on, here's a person that did good things, you should look like that person. Now, yes, did God do good things? Did Jesus do good things? Absolutely. Jesus lived a perfect life. I'm not, I'm not taking away from that. That is not the reason we have salvation. It, the reason we have salvation is because of his blood. He didn't just live a good life. He lived a perfect life and then chose to replace you on the cross. He lived a perfect life and shed his blood so you could live. And this is not just me saying this. Scripture points to this. It's Hebrews 9.22 that gives it to us clearly where it says, Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we are, we should be glad at those words. We have redemption through his blood because there was shedding of blood that was necessary. And instead of it being ours, it was Jesus' blood that took our place. I told this story at our Bible study on Thursday nights a few weeks ago, but I want to tell it again for, for all of you. It's the best way I've seen this explained in a long time. And I think it'd be helpful for us to see it this way. Because people have a hard time understanding the blood, have a hard time understanding the sacrifice that Christ made. And so I want to explain it to you the best way I can. This isn't my analogy, but this is the best one I've got. Imagine with me for a moment two friends young, elementary age, two friends. They, they live in the same neighborhood together. They play outside together. They're best friends. They go to the same elementary school. So they see each other all day at school, and they come home and play with each other all night, and then they do it all over again the next day. Then they go to middle school, and they continue being good friends. They stay good friends all through middle school and all through high school, and eventually through college. They go to the same local university. They, they become roommates in college. These are just the best of friends you can imagine. Now, when they graduate, as many people experience, when you graduate, you move on. Yeah, you're great friends, but life happens, and this one moves over in this side of the state, this one moves in this part of the state, and they just kind of detach. Now, the one friend, after he graduates, he went in for law, he went to pre-law, so he graduates and goes to law school, and finally, he ends up being a lawyer. And for many years, he's a great lawyer. He lives a very honest life being a great lawyer. So great, in fact, that when an open judgeship uh, uh, opens up, they call him up to be a judge. And this lawyer agrees, and he becomes a judge. And this judge is a good and just judge. A judge that is honest and favorable and shows compassion on those in front of him in the courthouse. This judge is known as, the just, as, as a just judge in this city, in this state. Now, the other friend other friend has, doesn't have as quite of a great opportunity. He didn't go for law, but he went for what he thought was a good degree, but it just never really panned out for him. He had jobs for a while, but those just kind of drew, uh, dried up, and eventually he finds himself in a dilemma. He needs money. He needs resources. He's, he's struggling in life, and so he just goes to dead-end job, to dead-end job, to dead-end job, and eventually he's just at the end. He cannot figure out how to get through life. As many in this situation find themselves in, he finds himself in drinking and alcohol and drugs, and, and he's just kind of going uh, down, the, down a bad path. Eventually, this life of, of, of uh, substance abuse takes him to a place where he's committing petty crimes, and he's just living a life of crime overall. And eventually, this petty crime goes into a little bit more serious crime, and finally, he gets caught. He's arrested, and he's taken to go in front of a judge in front of a, a courthouse. And can't you imagine who he is paired with? This friend that he once had through elementary school, middle school, high school, and college is now the man standing before him, judging him for crimes he committed. And the jury, after seeing the evidence, they find this man guilty. They find him guilty of the sins he's committed against their, their, against their town, that he's committed crimes against their city, and now the real dilemma comes up because the judge has to make a decision. The judge, at this point, has to make a decision with this man because he has to be a just judge. His job is to be just, and it would not be just of him to say, hey, I'll just let this one slide. No, the man's guilty. The jury said he's guilty. 
So as a judge, as his career, as a person with good ethics, he has to be just, which means he has to offer a punishment. But also, this man, as he sits there listening to his friend, listening to lawyers go back and forth, all he can do is think about the memories they had as, as children. This judge looks at his buddy down, the, down at the courthouse, and all he can think about is the years they spent together. The, fr- the fun they had in their neighborhood, the time they spent in college together, the deep conversations they had late at night, all this man can think about is all the good times they had as friends with a relationship. And so what do you do? Do you follow your job and be just, or do you follow your compassion and let him free? Well, the judge does what a good judge would do. He gives him the punishment he deserves. Now, the, the punishment he had, uh, a normal sentence for this would be a $100,000 fine. And so the judge, being a just judge, gives him the standard penalty for the crime he committed, a $100,000 fine. Now, the man who has now been charged with this fine, he can't afford it. He, hasn't been li- he can't even afford his own rent, much less this huge fine that's been put on him. But he's guilty, and so the fine is put, put on him. But here's where things change. Because this judge, who just was was just, he went and was a just judge. Now, he gets up off of his platform, he takes his wig off, takes his robe off, he walks off the platform, and he gives his friend a hug. Someone he hasn't seen in years. He gives his friend a hug. And then, the man takes a checkbook, the lawyer takes a checkbook, the judge, and he writes a check for the $100,000. And he gives it to the man and says, here, I'll pay your penalty for you. Do you see what I'm saying here? This judge just did two things. He was just, he gave the due punishment because the man was guilty, and yet also was compassionate. He went and paid the penalty for the man. And that's exactly what we see here with Jesus. When it says we are redeemed through his blood, that is exactly what we see. Because brothers and sisters, you and I are all guilty. Every single one of us could could stand in front of that jury and they would say guilty is charged. And we would have to pay that penalty. And this is where my analogy here does kind of fall apart because the penalty we owe is not $100,000. The penalty we owe is death. Somebody has to pay that. And yet the judge we have, the judge that is just, the judge that gave us the guilty verdict is also a judge of compassion. And verses 7 and 8 offer us that compassion in writing. It is our Lord and Savior Christ who came and showed compassion on us and took the penalty for us and shed his blood for us. And so you and I can sit here free men and women because the judge who gave us the same judgment we have, the guilty verdict, got up out out of his chair, came down to us, gave us a hug, and paid the penalty for us. That is the plan that that God had in place. That is the plan that Christ accomplished when he came here on earth. And the next section we're going to read here in Ephesians is where we begin to see how this plan plays out for Christ. And so read with me verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 9 starts saying, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the a purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
Now, these words at the beginning might be a little confusing. Paul says, the mystery of his will. Now, what does that mean? What does the mystery of his will mean? Because when you hear the word mystery, you hear secret. You hear something hiding from you. That's not exactly what you would gather from this text. In fact, when we see the word mystery in Scripture, especially when it comes to God, it's not a secret that's being hidden, but rather it's something that's not yet known. It's something that has not yet been revealed to the people. And here is a perfect example of it. The mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? He's referring to Christ. He's referring to Jesus. Because when Jesus came here on earth, people did not understand the reason in which he arrived. They did not understand why he came to earth. In fact, there are plenty of examples in Scripture of where Jesus is there confused. The people, when they come to him, they do not understand the reason he's here. And so they ask him questions that make no sense to us but to them, they genuinely did not understand why Christ came here to earth. I think the best example of this is in the book of Mark, where two of Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, ask a question that shows how ignorant they are to the reason in which he came. Here's what it says in verse 35 of chapter 10 of the book of Mark. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we, went, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. You are, able, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism for which I am baptized? Now James and John... Both disciples of Jesus Christ ask him this question. They are asking, Lord, can we sit at your right and on your left? Now they ask him this question on their way to Jerusalem. They are on their way to the capital city as they are speaking to one another. And these two disciples are asking this because most of the people who were following them were thinking the same thing that these two men were thinking. Most people, or really all people, thought that when Christ was going to arrive to Jerusalem, that when he got there, he was going to take his rightful throne in Jerusalem, that he was going to take over. They thought that he was coming to be on earth, the ruler of this earth, to conquer this world and destroy Rome and be the rightful king of this world. And so when James and John ask this question, they're not asking as a hypothetical down-the-road request. They're saying, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, and when you take your throne, can we sit on the right and left of you? When you take your throne in a few days, can we sit next to you? Can we be in that authority? It's why we see Palm Sunday. When he got to Jerusalem, all the people celebrate him like he's the king, like he's returned, like he's taking over. And these two men, who are disciples the ones that should understand his purpose for being here, do not get it. And so Jesus, when he says to them, you do not understand what you're asking, is because they do not understand. In fact, it's almost ironic, because Jesus does know why he's coming to Jerusalem. And it's not to take a throne. It's to be hung on the cross. And so these two men, they ask, can we be on your right and be on your left? And Jesus says, brothers, you don't get it. Because if you want to be on my right and be on my left, it's going to be hanging on two crosses next to me, not sitting on two thrones. These two men, disciples of Jesus Christ, did not get it. On their way to his crucifixion, essentially, did not understand the purpose in which he came. That is the mystery that Paul's referring to. The mystery that took Christ dying, resurrecting, and ascending for us to finally understand. 
It's the final puzzle piece that we as believers today have that makes the whole puzzle make sense. This whole puzzle of salvation makes sense because of Christ and what he did here on earth. Lastly, lastly, as we conclude this poem, Paul is, or Paul is going to share with us what happens after the resurrection. Share, share with us what happens now. Because the plan has succeeded but there's still a part of this puzzle that Paul is going to explain to us. It's the final piece of God's plan that we see take place, and it's here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of, of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Essentially, what Paul is sharing with us here is that Christ when he died when he was resurrected and when he ascended left us a gift we see this in the beginning of the book of Acts as well where you see exactly what Paul said to his disciples about this gift but we know from Acts and we know from here in Ephesians that Paul or that Jesus when he was about to ascend into heaven offered his disciples a gift that when he left something would come and take his place and that is what Paul is referring to here. What is this gift that Paul shares? The gift is the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit that comes on us when what happens? Well, read the text. What does it say? What happens, or how do we receive the Holy Spirit? One, you hear the word of truth. What we're doing tonight, talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You hear the word of truth. And then, what do you do after that? You believe in it. You put your faith in it. You live your life according to what you now have heard. You've heard about the resurrection. You've heard about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. And now you respond by living a life of submission to that. And when you do, you receive the Holy Spirit. And you get this guide for life. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, Ephesians here gives us the answer to that. The job of the Holy Spirit, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What I'm trying to say and what Paul shares here is that the Holy Spirit was many of his roles, but one of his roles is to be the key we have for salvation. We put our faith in Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then he is the key to our inheritance. He walks with us through this side of salvation. And when we, receive, when we reach glorification, it is the Holy Spirit that walks alongside us, and he is the key to that moment. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we receive what Christ has done for us through faith in Him. That's a lot. I recognize that's a lot. In 14, chapter, or 14 verses, Paul gives a lot of details. And so as we begin to come to a, come to a close here, let me give you a short summary of what, what all we've talked about. So I want you to understand all of it together, because all of it goes together. In 14 short verses, Paul walks us through the beginning, which was God's plan. God's plan for salvation to save humanity, to save his creation. He also walks us through his son's role in this plan and how his son accomplishes this plan through the crucifixion and through his blood. And then finally, we see how after this plan is completed, it is the Holy Spirit that comes alongside us to keep us focused on Christ and to walk towards obedience to him. And many of you, I'm sure, are seeing what I'm about to say here. But what Paul has explained, in summary, is the Trinity. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Paul has shown us, in summary, the role of these three parts of God living in unison, accomplishing one goal, saving us, saving humanity. All three parts of God accomplishing their responsibility to make this happen. And all of it is to bring him ultimate glory. And so Paul here has perfectly illustrated for us how God operates and how God exists and how we understand God to be. And when I read this chapter, and I read others similar to this chapter, I begin to see how God uh, operates, and it leaves me amazed, honestly. I mean, it really points to what I would consider the sovereignty of God. It points to the fact that our God is a God who is in control. I mean, everything we just saw here, understand what we just saw. It's God creating a plan, God completing that plan, and God reminding us of the completion of that plan. God is in control. God does everything himself exactly how he wants to do it for our benefit. And if you heard that and didn't hear the beginning of this message, it could leave you discouraged. But don't forget what we read at the very beginning of this section. What does Paul tell us in chapter, in verse 3? That God chose us. That God chose to have us come alongside him. And that becomes so much more important when you understand the sovereignty we just read about. Because God chose us even though we do not have a direct role to play in his plan. God chose us even though he could accomplish everything on his own. God chose us even though our, what we do kind of makes it harder on him. But God still chose us. And so everything we've seen tonight is not to leave us discouraged, it's to leave us hopeful. Because we have a God full of sovereignty that has saved us and done everything for us. And now we can just rejoice. In fact, that's the question we have to ask. If God's done everything for us, what role do we play in all of this? Are we just here to sit and do nothing? Well, no, I don't believe that. In fact, I think the scripture we've read tonight points to that not being true. Read with me again verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, this is the important part, might be to the praise of his glory. So what role do we play in all of this? What role does the sovereignty have for us to do? It's quite simple. To praise God for the fact that he deserves glory. To bring him praise because he's accomplished what he came to accomplish. To bring him all we have because all we have is his to begin with. God has communicated that in his sovereignty he has saved us and now all he wants is us. Now we can be free to worship him and to enjoy him and to have fun worshiping with our brothers and sisters, to enjoy this life that he has given us because of the freedom we've received through his son, Jesus Christ. And so every week here at Refiner, we close with worship. And the reason we do that is for reflection. We want to reflect as we conclude service. But tonight, like most nights, what I'm going to ask you to do is use this time of reflection to praise God. Because as we've seen, he's accomplished everything. He gave us the plan, he gave us the accomplishing of the plan, and he gave us the, rem to the reminder that this plan exists. And so tonight, we get to come here, and we get to just worship. And we get to spend our time worshiping free, knowing that we have the ability to worship him. So as we conclude tonight, I'm going to pray for us, but I want us to use this time as we conclude service to simply praise God. 
like always, the altars are open, and I encourage you to use them if you need prayer. Someone can come and pray for you if you need that. But during this time, I want you to just use it to praise God and offer Him your life. Offer Him all you have, because as you see here, the Lord has offered us everything He has. The Lord has offered us His, his life, His plan, His accomplishing of it, His blood. Verses 7 and 8, it's Christ that humbled himself to be a human, be his own creation, and then allowed himself to shed his own blood for you and for me and for everyone who has ever lived and everyone who will ever live receives the same ability to say yes to this, this call, to worship God because God deserves all the praise and glory. And so... Let me pray for us. And then as we conclude service, I encourage you to stand and we will worship God.